0: Good morning and thank you for joining us for this week's segment of Democracy Appalled. This is episode three, and in this episode we'll be looking at where we left off last week. We last week we talked about the history of democracy, and what came from that discussion was that there are five different things that democracy uh is challenged by, threatened by, or helped by, complemented by. And those are the rise of populism. Polarization, disinformation, economic inequality, and the effects of globalism, and they all pose some sort of threat, challenge, or help uh, in enhance and enrich democracy and demo- democratic systems of government. So that's where we left off last week, and we didn't get enough time to finish that last week. But in this week, let's start off with that, and then we'll go into the judiciary's role in democracy, and then we'll look. At current events and look as democracy prevailed or appalled this week, we're looking at Nigeria and Mexico and the recent events they've had relating to democracy. So it'll be a really interesting segment. I'm your host Rohan Mova, and thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Appalled. And we're live every every Monday from five a.m. Eastern time on WWPR fourteen ninety. And this is Democracy Appalled. and throughout this segment episode. Episode number three, actually. Please feel free to email us at democracyappalled at gmail.com, and we'll bring whatever you say in our next week's session. Feel free to email us at democracyappalled at gmail.com, and we will give you a shout out. All right, let's get into it. So to expand on the challenges and the compliments and the enrichment from the rise of populism, polarization and disinformation, as well as economic inequality and the effects of globalization, What do they pose to democratic systems of government? Well, let's start with populism. Populism refers to a political approach that seeks to appeal to the interests and emotions of ordinary people, often by claiming to represent the voice of the people. We've heard that too many times with the establishment saying it, politicians day in and day out. What do they say? We're here to get the voice of the people. What does that mean? I mean, you, they, but populism is when you have a group or a person that says, we're going to represent the voice of the people against the elite and the establishment. I'm here to fight the establishment. The establishment gets it wrong. You hear this with Democrats and Republicans alike. Oh, the establishment did that again. You know, I'm here to clean up Washington. It's, it, it's been going on for too long while populist movements, they can bring important issues to the forefront of political debate. They can also pose a challenge to democratic governance by promoting simplistic or extreme solutions to complex problems. So many times with populism, you see these issues that that occur with the working class, the middle class. They bring these issues to the forefront and they invoke a sense of purpose and a sense of voice. And but many times they don't have a real solution that that isn't too simplistic or too extreme. Sometimes there are though, sometimes there are successful populist movements, but populist leaders, they many times they use rhetoric that is divisive sometimes, but it emphasizes the differences between groups of people rather than their shared interests. Again, this goes back to the concept of voice of the people, the voice, of the middle class, the working class against the elite and the establishment, the establishment, the current Washington DC, they're not working for you, but I can work for you. I'm for the people. That's the type of rhetoric you see many times. So within the United States, some may say that the election of President Trump in 2016 was seen as a manifestation of populist sentiment where President Trump, he campaigned on a platform that emphasized anti-establishment rhetoric and the promises to drain the swamp of political corruption. Drain the swamp isn't something he he just said, but this has been said time and time again uh, to it basically means Washington Washington is corrupt. Washington is corrupt. Washington is not working for us. We need to get people that are actually going to work for us and do what we want. So President Trump's election in 2016, it was definitely a surprise to poll pollsters, politicians alike. He was an outsider that came in. So it's, it's not a surprise that many people see this as a manifestation of populist sentiment, because this was not the uh, regular Washington presidency, the status quo. This was different. And. It could be many times seen as a manifestation of populist sentiment very well because that is what he ran on. I'm an outsider that doesn't like the establishment that is going to go drain the swamp and work for you. That's in the United States. In Europe, populist movements have gained significant support in countries such as Italy, Hungary, and Poland. These movements often promote anti-immigrant and anti-globalization views and seek to capitalize on the disillusionment that many people feel towards traditional political parties and institutions. Within U.S. history, populism has been a recurring theme, particularly during periods of economic hardship and political uncertainty. Populism is a political approach that seeks to appeal to the interests and emotions of the ordinary people, right? So it's me and you, whoever's listening to the, to me. If you're listening, please send me an email at democracypod at gmo.com. But again, it's it's just the regular people like me, you, your neighbor, my neighbor. And that's what populism refers to. And that's what the populist sentiment is. That's who they're appealing to. And one of the most famous examples of populism in U.S. history is the People's Party, also known as the Populist Party, which emerged in the 1890s. The Populist Party was a political movement that sought to represent the interests of farmers and laborers who were struggling with economic hardship and political disenfranchisement. The party's platform included a number of progressive policies, such as the establishment of an eight-hour workday, the nationalization of railroads and other key industries, and the introduction of a graduated income tax. The Populist Party enjoyed some success in the 1890s, particularly in the Midwest and the South. The party's candidate for president, William Jennings Bryan, ran on a platform of economic populism in 1896, but was ultimately defeated in the Republican, by the Republican candidate, William McKinley. Despite its lack of electoral success, the populist party had a significant impact on US politics, particularly in its advocacy for progressive economic policies and the rights of ordinary Americans. Again, the rise of populism, it's, it's fueled by a variety of factors, that appeal to the ordinary people. And what more appeals to the ordinary people than money? It Many times it goes back to the economics of the factor. When there's a recession, what do you blame? The government. When there's there's too much inflation, it's the government. When gas prices are high, it's government. But many times it is the money, it is the economic factors that fuel the rise of populism, that fuel the, a change in government. Again, like in 20, 2020, a major piece was it's COVID, we're losing jobs, small businesses are shutting down, and so on. But the rise of populism is fueled by a variety of factors from economic, social and political factors. But I truly believe that the economic factors, forget populism, but in any election, the economic factors are by far the most important for the voting people. And for most people, whether they vote, they don't, but the economic factors are a key piece. Because of how greatly it affects each and every one of us. Many Americans, when it comes to populism, this is what populism aims to address. I mean, they felt left behind. And that is what populism aims to address. Many Americans, many people American America and abroad want to feel a part of a movement, a part of something bigger than themselves. And that's what populist sentiment shows and gets you there. But many Americans have felt left behind by the force of globalization, and technological change, leading to a sense of economic insecurity and a growing sense of disillusionment with traditional political institutions. Populist leaders have sought to capitalize on these feelings by promising simple and often extreme solutions to complex problems. However, populism has also been criticized for promoting simplistic and often exclusionary views and for contributing to a sense of division and polarization within society. The enduring legacy of populism in the United States highlights the ongoing tension between the ideals of democracy and the challenges of economic inequality, political corruption, and social division. The era of good feelings is, is one that some people may say is a populist sentiment. Some people may say it's not a populist sentiment, but you know, it's not typically considered an a, a example of populism in the United States, but I'm going to touch on anyways. The era of good feelings was a period of relative political stability and economic growth in the United States. It lasted from approximately 1815 to 1825. It was marked by a lack of significant political conflict. That's why it was called the era of good feelings, as they say. But the Federalist Party, they had largely disbanded, and the Democratic-Republican Party held a dominant position in the national politics. So it was more that more people agreed with you know one party versus another, and there was a lack of too much polarization when it came to that time. Uh, You know, although, you know, the era of good feelings is not generally categorized as a kind of populist sentiment seen in other periods of U.S. history, it did reflect a growing sense of national unity and identity. The War of 1812, which had just ended prior to the start of the era of good feelings, had helped solidify a national sense of pride, purpose, and it had also spurred economic growth and development. I believe the idea of having national sense of pride and purpose is lost on us today, especially when it comes to the younger generation. There is no sense of national pride and purpose. It doesn't matter what party you, you believe in, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, the Libertarian Party, wherever you stand on the political spectrum. If you believe that change should come to the United States, it's important that you have a strong vision you have a strong belief in the ideals of the United States and, the, and, the, and everything that holds us so close together, whether that be the ideals of liberty, whether that be the ideals of democracy, whether that be the ideals that we are all created equal in the name of God, or whether, whether we all deserve the pursuit of happiness. You know, those, I believe, are the ideals that help solidify a sense of national pride, purpose, and help make us the greatest country and without that sense of national pride and purpose there becomes a divisive theme to everything that we do everything that tries to happen any political belief that that is out there but the fact of the matter is whether you're a democrat or whether you're a republican you truly believe that you're doing what is best for america and for america to prosper you know we have different ways of viewing the issues and there many times there's not one correct answer you can argue back and forth, compromise so many times, but there is no one answer. And one guy I have admired time and time again—he gets lost in American history sometimes, but his name is Henry Clay, and he—he was—he was a great figure during the 1800s-ish when there was slavery, the, all these slavery debates. You can thank him for all these different compromises that helped prolong the war because the war was coming. It was coming. It was a long time coming. But he prolonged it as long as he could. And because of him, there was a great sense of, you know, maybe we can work this out. Maybe it's maybe we can figure something out. But he was known as a great compromiser. He liked to call himself the protector of the American industry. And he did this with things like the American plan. But major thing was he compromised. Time and time again, he worked to compromise, find a middle ground. And I believe he's one of those people that was never president, but he did a lot of things for the United States and he gets lost in history. But I have a poster of him in my room and I greatly respect him. But when it comes back to this idea of a populist sentiment, there there is usually a growing sense of national unity, identity in the United States when it comes to the populist sentiments. And when it comes to the era of good feelings, it had a relative period of political stability and economic growth. So that's enough for populism, but it is a driving force that has helped change democracy within the United States and abroad. The next one I'm going to go to is polarization. Polarization plays a key piece in democracy today in the history. And it, I believe it will for a long, long time. Polarization refers to the growing divide between different groups of people, often along political or ideological lines, while some degree of pol- political polarization is normal in democratic societies. Extreme polarization, that's the, that's the issue that scares us, extreme polarization, because that is what can make it difficult for different groups to work together to find solutions to shared problems. Polarization can also be exacerbated by the spread of disinformation, which refers to false or misleading information that is spread through social media and other online platforms. Polarization in the United States, political polarization has become increasingly extreme in recent years with Democrats and Republicans becoming more divided on a range of issues including healthcare, immigration, and gun control. This polarization has made it more difficult for the two parties to work together to find common ground and has led to the rising gridlock and political dissatisfaction and dysfunction. But the issue is. Many people say, we need a third party. These two parties, they're not working for us. You see the Republicans in the Republican primary nominating more and more conservative people. Democrats in the Democratic primaries, they're nominating more and more liberal people. Where's the middle ground? Where is there moderate or moderate on either side? It's just getting more and more liberal, or more and more conservative, spreading the spectrum. It's stretching it so, so far. It's like you have a rubber band and you're pulling it from both ends and it's about a break. But if you want to install a third party, someone has to go in and take the leap because it's going to hurt one party, whether it hurts the Democrats or Republicans is to be seen. But if a third party does emerge, a big third party, it will hurt one side because there is nobody that is exactly 50-50. He will only capture the independents and so on. But that that is an issue because for some time, one party will hurt. And that is what is is scary for either of these parties at the moment. No one wants to lose control. But let's go to Brazil. In Brazil, the election of far right populist Jair Bolsonaro. We talked about this in a previous episode, where he got un, where he got uh, voted out of office during his real uh, seeking re-election, and he didn't want to leave the office and so on. But When when he was elected, there was a further polarization in an already divided society. Bolsonaro has been criticized for his divisive rhetoric, including his comments that have been described as racist, sexist, homophobic, and so on. But his election has also led to a rise in political violence and a growing sense of fear and division within Brazilian society. President George Washington is often remembered for his efforts to avoid the formation of a two-party system in the United States. You know, and I, I, he. This is something that comes up time and time again in the media, in the news, but it, it doesn't get thought about enough. Washington believed that the rise of political factions could lead to division and polarization within the country, and could ultimately threaten the stability and effectiveness of democratic government. This is something he warned against about time and time again. He was like, "Don't, don't get into this political factions that is going to threaten democracy and threaten the United States." But you know what's happening now? If you really think about it, has there been a time in the United... Well, I mean, there has been a time that we've been more polarized. You think about the civil war and so on. But this is one of the times where we're getting too polarized. What happened when we got too polarized last time? There was a civil war. I'm not saying there's going to be a civil war now. I'm definitely not saying that at all. But this is threatening the stability and effectiveness of a democratic government when there's polarization, extreme polarization to the degree that we have it now, the stability and effectiveness of the United States government, the United States democracy is at the red because you see countries like India, you see countries like China, they're moving forward, whether the United States likes it or not. And at a time when we have extreme polarization, other countries are looking to take advantage of it. And if the United States is not able to progress forward, We have always been the leader of change, and the United States and us, we need to remain the leaders of change. But how do we do that when we have extreme polarization that's leading to uh, instability in democratic governments and a lack of effectivity and greatness in political distrust? One of the issues is that when there's great political distrust in a democratic government, the people are not able to voice their concerns And they don't think anything will happen. Washington's concerns about the dangers of political factions were laid out in his farewell address, which he warned in 1796, as he prepared to leave office in his address. He said, um, the baneful effects of the spirit of the party of party and called on Americans to remain united and focus on their shared interests and values. I believe that is such an important piece where he said. We need to remain united and focused on our shared interests and values. Because right now we look at every single little thing that divides us, whether it's political ideology, it's this issue, that issue, but we look at what divides us rather than what unites us, because there's so much as Americans that we can unite to so much that we've overcome and we're stronger because of it. And we're stronger together, but rather not focusing on those shared interests and values, is leading to extreme polarization and a lack of effectiveness in the United, within the United States domestically, domestic policy, foreign policy, and so on. Washington's fears about the rise of political factions were based on his experiences as a president. During his presidency, there were two political parties, the Federalists, who favored a strong central government and closer ties with Britain, and the Democratic Republicans, who favored a more limited role for the federal government and closer ties with France. The growing divide between these two parties had made it increasingly difficult for Washington to govern effectively, as both sides sought to block the other's policies and gain a political advantage. Despite his efforts to avoid the formation of a two-party system, Washington himself was unable to prevent the rise of political factions in the United States. However, his warnings about the dangers of polarization and division have continued to resonate every time throughout American history and have inspired many leaders to seek a a way to bridge divides and promote unity. But does that happen? Has it happened? It, It hasn't. It honestly hasn't, especially in modern times. The dangers of polarization and division have become increasingly, increasingly important and relevant as the rise of populism, the spread of disinformation, and other factors have contributed to the growing tensions and divisiveness within American society. However, the example of Washington and his efforts to avoid the formation of a two party system remain a powerful reminder of the importance of unity and common purpose in democratic governance. Alright, let's move on from polarization. I think I've talked enough about polarization and took your ear off that one. again. If you're just tuning in, I'm your host, Rohan Mova, and this is Democracy Appalled. On this show, we talk about democracy and its impact on the world, everything about democracy. If you have any questions about democracy, what we're talking about, or a topic that you want us to bring in next week's session, please email us at democracyappalled at gmo.com, and we will be sure to not only talk about that topic next week, but give you a shout out. Please email us at democracyappalled at gmo.com. Let's move on. Economic inequality is another challenge that poses a threat to democratic governance. When large portions of the population are excluded from economic opportunities, they may become disillusioned with the democratic process and more susceptible to extremist or anti-democratic views. Economic inequality can also lead to the concentration of wealth and power in the hands of a few individuals or corporations, which can undermine the legitimacy of democratic institutions. This idea of concentration of wealth in the power in the hands of a few individuals or corporations is something that we've heard many times with many different candidates on the campaign trail. The idea that the wealth needs to be spread. That that's a that's a debate in its own in its own topic. But when it comes to economic inequality, in many countries around the world, economic inequality has become a significant challenge to democratic governance. In the United States, for example, the concentration of wealth in the hands of a small number of individuals and corporations have been blamed for contributing to the rise of populist sentiment and a growing sense of disillusionment with traditional political institutions. In Brazil, economic inequality is one of the major challenges facing the country's democratic system. The country has one of the highest levels of income inequality in the world, with a small elite controlling much of the country's wealth and resources. This inequality has contributed to the sense of social and political instability and has made it more difficult for the country to address other challenges such as crime and immense corruption. Let's move on to the effects of globalization. The effects globalization poses on ongoing challenges to democratic governance is great as the world becomes increasingly interconnected, which is many times a good thing, many times a good thing. But there are also many some challenges that is, are associated with this. Many of the challenges that democratic societies face, such as climate change and terrorism, are global in nature. However, the institutions of democratic governance are often organized at a national or local level. Right? It's not like the United States's decision to do this and this is going to directly affect another country because the United States people, the people of the United States, voted for you know their governor or the president. It's not like the people in Brazil did or the people in Afghanistan or Syria, or India, or wherever it did. So that is one thing that can make it difficult to coordinate effective responses to global challenges when it comes to things like terrorism or so on. And the effects of globalization can also lead to economic disruptions and challenges in traditional patterns of employment, which can lead to social and political instability. I mean, one of the things you see is outsourcing. Outsourcing is a big issue for. The United States job market, whether it comes to manufacturing, moving to other countries like India and China that have great manufacturing that you can get for cheaper prices or when it comes to some technology jobs are getting outsourced in countries like India. But globalization, it does have many good effects. We are more interconnected as a world, as a people because of globalization. But sometimes it doesn't have the best economic impact. And when it comes to the United States. The decline of manufacturing jobs and the rise of the service economy has led to significant economic disruptions and changes in traditional patterns of employment. And this has contributed to a growing sense of disillusionment and traditional political institution, as well as a rise in populist sentiment, which is can be really attributed to this economic disruption. Again, I, I think time and time again, it comes back to the economics of the situation, how it affects each and every one of us. In Europe, the effects of globalization have contributed to the rise of anti-immigrant sentiment and a growing sense of fear and division within many countries. The influx of refugees and immigrants from Africa and the Middle East has contributed to a sense of cultural and economic anxiety and has made it more difficult for some countries to maintain a sense of national unity. The Brexit vote in the United Kingdom is also seen as a manifestation of these anxieties, as many Britons... They voted to leave the European Union in order to regain control of their national borders and sovereignty. That can be debated, but it's, it's something, it's a sense of pride for them. We need to get our country back to Great Britain because they have their own problems that they're dealing with great economic uncertainty, great political unrest, they have their own problems they need to deal with. When it comes to disinformation, the spread of disinformation around the world has become a major dem- challenge to democratic governance. In the United States, for example, the spread of false information through social media has been blamed for exacerbating political polarization and undermining public trust in democratic institutions. In Myanmar, the spread of disinformation through social media has been blamed for contributing to the persecution of the country's Rohingya Muslim minority. The spread of false information about the Rohingya has contributed to the rise in anti-Muslim sentiment within the country. And has made it more difficult to resolve the ongoing crisis. Again, if you're just tuning in, this is your host Rohan Mova. This is Democracy Appalled. We're talking about democracy and its impact on the world. This show is all about democracy. We're live from 1490 WWPRAM every Monday at 5 a.m. Eastern. If you have any questions about democracy, send us an email at democracyappalled at gmail.com. If you have anything you want us to bring in next week's session, or just want to be shouted out, email us at democracy appalled at gmail.com. Let's move on to the importance of journalism in restoring our democracy, the importance of democracy, journalism in restoring our democracy cannot be uh, thought of less because it is really important. The United States of America was founded on the principles of liberty, justice and democracy. The founding fathers recognized the importance of free press in maintaining those principles. And the role of the journalist has been evolving ever since. From the early days of American history to the present day, the role of the journalist has become more more complex and more nuanced, reflecting the changing needs of society and the ever-political landscape. You know, I consider myself a journalist to some extent, doing different stories, different uh, segments outside of this radio show. But the idea that journalists are trying to spread disinformation, trying to polarize country many journalists they don't think like that their goal is to represent all sides of the news through the eyes of regular people at least that's my goal it always has been during the early days of the united states journalism played an essential role in shaping the opinions of citizens newspapers were a primary source of information and they often served as the voice of political parties in the late 1700s and early 1800s newspapers were often used to promote the ideas of politicians And were highly partisan in the late 1700s to the early 1800s. However, this began to change in the mid 1800s with the rise of the penny press. What is the penny press? The penny press made it possible by advances of printing technology, it made newspapers more accessible to the general public. This led to a decline in the influence of political parties on the media, and newspapers began to focus more on reporting the news objectively. This trend continued into the 20th century with the rise of professional journalism, and the development of codes of ethics. However, the role of journalism has always been intertwined with the political landscape of the United States. During during times of crisis, journalists have played a critical role in shaping public opinion and holding those in, in power accountable. That is why journalism has been known as the fourth estate, if you heard it before. They call it important as the watchdog of the government, the voice of the people. You know, it's evident that the journalism is important because it's evident during the Watergate scandal in the 70s, Investigative journalists, they played a crucial role in uncovering the corruption of the Nixon administration. This led to the resignation of President Nixon and demonstrated the power of the press in democracy, and it cannot be undervalued because... The power of the press and democracy is the reason that there isn't rampant corruption. The people have a voice, the people know what's going on. That is why it is important that journalism remains the fourth estate, but it is also important that a lot of journalism remains objective and follows that co- codes of ethics rather than becoming more highly partisan as it did in the late 1700s and early 1800s, because that again poses a threat. In our understanding of democracy, We will be going through the role media and media and journalism play on democracy and its evolution. That is the number six in understanding democracy, and we'll go through that in one of our later episodes. If you forgot the the steps that we're going through to understand democracy, it's the history of democracy, the role of democracy in modern society, the current state of democracy in the United States. The current state of democracy globally, the future of democracy and the relationship between democracy and the media. Currently, we're going through finishing what we left off on last week through the history of democracy. You know, we talked about the Watergate scandal and the Nixon when it led to the resignation of President Nixon, which again demonstrated the power of the press and democracy. Another thing that has changed the role of the journalists, made it more important is the evolution of technology, that each and every one of us use, whether to listen to this radio or this this segment, this episode right now, or to read the newspaper or to read an article online. It has played a significant impact on the role of the journalists. The rise of internet and social media has made it easier for anyone to become a publisher and traditional media outlets have had to adapt to the changing political landscape. Today, political landscape and technological landscape Today, many people get their news from social media and social and journalists must compete with a plethora of voices to be heard. This has led to an increase in the importance of fact checking and verification as misinformation and fake news are rampant on social media platforms. Can you guys guess what percent of American adults use Facebook as their number one news source? Just think about it. I'm going to give you the answer in a few seconds, but if you get it right. Email us at at and We'll be sure to give you a shout out. It is almost a third of Americans, about 36% said that they, of U.S. adults said that they regularly access Facebook to get their news. That is insane. Facebook to get their news has shown the evolution of technology on the role of the journalists and the importance of protecting, protecting uh, fact-checking and verification to dispel misinformation and fake news, because those are rampant on social media platforms. What is news versus what is not news? That is a debate in and of itself. The role of the journalist in the 21st century is more important than ever. I truly believe this. As the the United States faces new challenges from the pandemic to political polarization to instability abroad, journalists must continue to provide accurate and unbiased reporting to inform the public. The role of the journalist as a watchdog of democracy has never been more critical. And it is essential that journalists continue to uphold the principles of their profession, the profession that historically has protected democracy, has upheld the principles of our American ideals. So it is essential and never been more critical that the role of a journalist as the watchdog of democracy and for the people and for the people in power and the voice of the people. Their role has never been more critical, I truly believe that, than today. The 21st century will be the era of technology and the era of the journalists, the evolving journalists. The role of the journalist has evolved significantly since the founding of the United States, as we've seen. From partisan newspapers, to the rise of professional journalism, the role of the journalist has become more complex and nuanced. In the 21st century, journalists must continue to uphold the principles of journalism and provide accurate and unbiased reporting to inform the public. The role of the journalist as a watchdog of democracy is essential. And the United States relies on a free and independent press to maintain its principles of liberty, justice, and democracy. The rise of populism, polarization, and disinformation, as well as economic inequality and the effects of globalization are all ongoing challenges that have their positives and their negatives to the stability and effectiveness of democratic government, systems of government. These challenges require ongoing attention and support from democratic societies. And what are democratic societies? It's me, you, your neighbor and everybody involved in our democracy. And it's, it's important to remember the commitment to the principles of democratic governance, including the protection of individual rights and the rule of law. With that, we finish where we left off from last week and we'll start with the judiciary's role in democracy. The founding fathers of our country, the United States, had a clear vision of the judiciary's role in democracy. They believed that the judiciary was a critical branch of the government responsible for upholding the Constitution, ensuring justice, and protecting the rights of the citizens, individual liberties. And that was a key piece in getting the Constitution ratified. It was the Bill of Rights protecting individual liberties, along with all other rights. Because the liberties that we have in the Bill of Rights, including the freedom of press, the freedom of speech, and so on, the right to bear arms, every single individual liberty that we have in the Bill of Rights, was installed there to protect tyranny from the government. The government, the founding fathers, they believed that there needed to be a way to uphold the Constitution and protect the citizens protect the people, protect the liberties, to prevent tyranny from the government. That is what they were very worried about right after coming out of British rule. It was, it was scary for them to think about an idea that the government could have too much power. So what was a way to limit the power of the government and check to make sure that the individual liberties, the values of the country are not getting torn down and are being upheld? It was the judiciary because it was so important in upholding the Constitution and the rights. The Founding Fathers designed the judiciary to be an independent and impartial branch of the government, free from political influence. They believed that an independent judiciary was essential to the protection of individual rights and the rule of law. The Constitution outlines the powers and responsibilities of the judiciary, which include interpreting the law resolving disputes and ensuring that the actions of government officials are in accordance with the Constitution. We always hear this. No one is ever above the law. How true is that? You could argue that it's not completely true. People with more power, people with more money, they're less likely to, you know, be, be punished by the law and so on. But to the most part, the ideal that no one is above the law stand true. And a great part of that is because of the judiciary, because their role is to provide an equal playing, ground, equal playing field. And that's not always the case. And we see that many times, get trying to get criminal justice reform, bipartisan legislation in that matter too. And the equal playing field, it's, it's a great ideal, but it hasn't been fully achieved. But the idea that the Founding Fathers designed the judiciary around Being an independent and impartial branch of the government has been a large success in protecting the checks and balances protecting individual liberties and upholding the constitution the founding fathers they believed that the judiciary should have the power of judicial review which allows the courts to declare laws and actions of the government unconstitutional but the judiciary got this power during marbury v. madison in 1803 where they established the power of judicial review that the courts have that power and it remains a critical aspect of judiciary's role today in democracy and more as they're able to decide well, is this a, a constitutional legislation that the that congress has passed is this executive order constitutional that is what the judiciary checks and a key part of that is making sure congress is not overstepping its bound into becoming a tyrannical government taking over our individual liberties Same thing with the president, executive order, and that is why these checks and balances are so crucial, and they're working tremendously well, making sure that the judiciary has the power of judicial review and are enacting that power of judicial review. Overall, the Founding Fathers envisioned the judiciary as a critical component of a democratic system of government, responsible for ensuring justice, protecting individual rights, and upholding the Constitution, and for a large part, it's been a success especially compared to other countries that don't have these sort of checks and balances, that have tyrannical rule and authoritarian regimes, that don't have individual liberties. Comparatively, the United States is a wild, wild, amazing success. And it continues to be that today. Though there may be problems that the United States will continue to work on as democracy evolves, as American democracy evolves, the Founding Fathers envisioned plan is a wild success. But it's not a full and total success, because there are certain issues when it comes to a certain level playing field. The fact that the ideal of no one is above the law isn't, hasn't been fully achieved. The Supreme Court is the final authority on legal disputes and has the responsibility to interpret the Constitution and ensure that the government operates within the limits of the law. However, some people may argue that the court has overstepped its boundaries in certain cases, The Supreme Court has always been a controversial piece of American legislation, American rules, because the Supreme Court has had a big piece in every single day-to-day actions of Americans because the Supreme Court, like I said, it protects individual liberties. The Supreme Court is the court of last resort, and most of its significance arises from it being an appellate body, that is, a body that has the power to review and change the decisions of lower courts. Since it does not hear many cases a year, that makes it all the more significant. But how did there become this magic number of nine justices to sit on this very powerful Supreme Court? Basically, the US Constitution grants Congress the power to determine how many justices sit on the Supreme Court. And this number has ranged between five and 10, but since 1869, the number has been set at nine. And the number of justices on the Supreme Court has been politically manipulated over the years. Take Congress's issues with President Andrew Johnson, and he was Abraham Lincoln's, President Abraham Lincoln's vice president, and then his successor after he was assassinated. Congress wasn't too fond of President Johnson, since its members thought that he had abused his presidential power by removing the respected Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, from office. Congress wanted to limit President Johnson's power as much as it could. It passed legislation in 1866, decreasing the number of judges from 10 to 7 on the Supreme Court so that President Johnson wouldn't be able to appoint any new justices. Congress's decision was short-lived, however. The Supreme Court shrank only to 8 justices before the 1869 decision to set the number to 9. Not coincidentally, this was the same year that President Johnson ceased to be president. Congress wasn't the only branch of government to attempt to alter the power structure. President Franklin Roosevelt proposed a reorganization bill to Congress that would allow the president to appoint a new justice for each one who was at least 70 years old. Congress, of course, did not oblige because this was seen as a court packing scheme that would have given Roosevelt too much power. President Roosevelt's motives were to push through his New Deal. Which the Supreme Court had continually worked against during uh, the president's first term. But this court packing idea is not something that is uh, just new coming up. You may have heard it in the news in recent years as well. But this is an idea that has been going on for a long while, politically manipulating the courts. But time and time again, the idea of checks and balances between the legislative, executive, and judicial branches has remained consistent. And while it may have been politically manipulated at times, its constitutional mandate has still served. But one of the main criticisms of the Supreme Court is that it has sometimes made decisions that go beyond its constitutional mandate. For example, some people argue that the court's decision in Roe v. Wade in 1973, which established a woman's right to an abortion, was based on a questionable interpretation of the Constitution and went beyond the court's authority to interpret the law. And then Dobbs v. Jackson, which overturned Roe v. Wade, had, again, the same controversial issue that they didn't have the right to do this. But either way the court goes, they are protecting the constitutional mandate for the most part and in interpreting the Constitution. Similarly, some argue that the court's decision in Citizens United versus federal, the Federal Election Commission in 2010, which struck down limits on corporate spending in political campaigns, has had a negative impact on the democratic process and as an example of the court overstepping its authority. There have always been controversies surrounding the court system, especially the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land. Whenever you're the highest of anything, you're always bound to public criticism, whether it be the president, whether it be Congress, whether it be the speaker, whether it be the Supreme Court, every single justice. They have faced criticism time and time again, including personal threats. We saw with Justice Kavanaugh and many of the other justices, threats made near their house, and we've seen that on the news. But the Supreme Court is something that we know very well, especially in the recent news with the cases like Roe versus Wade, and then the overturning with Dobbs versus Jackson. They've had to uphold what they believe to be the constitution. So their interpretation of the constitution has always led to some controversial decisions where not everyone will agree, similar to legislation that has passed. However, it's important to note that the Supreme Court They debate and they have disagreements about the proper interpretation of the law, but the court's decisions are always subject to review and potential reversal by future courts. And the legislative and executive branches also have the power to respond to Supreme Court decisions through the lawmaking process. So it's not an end-all be-all because there is checks and balances. You can't have the judiciary getting too much power. You can't have the executive getting too much power, and you can't have the legislative branch getting too much power. So this is an important piece that the legislative and executive branches can respond to the Supreme Court decisions. You can create an amendment and so on. It's important to note that the Supreme Court decisions, they're not universally accepted or universally agreed upon. There is often debate and disagreement about the proper interpretation of the law. Even between the nine justices there are on the court, they don't agree all the time. Rarely do they ever have a unanimous decision. Overall, while there, while there may be instances where the Supreme Court decisions aren't controversial or contested, it remains an important and necessary institution in our democratic system of government. Its role in interpreting the law and ensuring that the government operates within the limits of the Constitution is essential to maintaining the rule of law and protecting the rights of all citizens. Because it's important to remember that the court, they can overstep if they're not checked. And it's important that we have checks and balances with legislative and executive branches, because like we talked about in the first episode, when it comes to Israel, the court is overstepping their bound into influencing elections and influencing other decisions that they don't have the constitutional mandate to do. So it's important to have strong checks and balances with legislative and executive branches. And that is what we have currently. So it's important to remember that our government operates within the system of government the system of democratic control. This is your host, Rohan Mova. And if you're just tuning in, we're talking about democracy and its impact on the world. This show is all about democracy. This is Democracy Appalled. If you have any questions about democracy, what we've said or anything, please send us an email at democracyappalled at gmo.com. If you have any topics for us to bring in our next week's session, please email us at democracyappalled at gmo.com. And we will give you a shout out and bring that topic in our next week's session. Now on to the next topic. Is democracy prevailing or appalled this week? Let's take a look at two countries, Nigeria and Mexico. Nigeria is the largest democracy in Africa. Millions of Nigerians casted their vote on Saturday in one of the most consequential elections there in decades. As both Africa's largest economy and most populous country with 214 million people, what happens in Nigeria has a wide impact. Voters are set to elect a new president after eight years under Muhammadu Buhari, but whoever wins will face some tough challenges. President Buhari is wrapping up his second term and cannot run again. Seventy-year-old Bola Ahmed-Tinbu, a former governor of Lagos State, is running for the All Progressives Congress, APC, Buhari's governing party. There are 18 candidates, with only one woman, but three of them matter most. The frontrunners are two older figures who have dominated politics for a generation, and then a slightly younger candidate who has blown open the race, threatening to pull off a major upset. Two-thirds of the population now live in poverty, and almost half of young people are unemployed. With millions of job losses since outgoing President Buhari's government took office in 2015, the value of Nigeria's currency, the naira, has tanked, while inflation has soared and oil production has dropped to a 40-year low. It's possible the election could go to a runoff vote for the first time in Nigerian history. To win an election outright, a candidate has to win the most votes, with at least 25% in at least 24 of Nigeria's 36 states. All of the candidates have strong support in some regions, but face an uphill task in others. The fact that the race will likely come down to three main candidates adds to the possibility of a runoff. A runoff election is something I know far too well. Being a hometown resident of the state of Georgia, I've known runoff elections, especially in recent years. If you've been watching the national news, Georgia has had several runoff elections because no candidate has got 50 percent in the recent Senate elections, uh, especially uh, with Senator Perdue versus Senator uh, Ossoff. And then you have the one with against Senator Leffler and Warnock in 2020. And then our most recent one this past year in 2022 with Herschel Walker against Senator Warnock, and they all went to a runoff election. Uh, But the reason that they went to a runoff election is that even though they were really close to 50%, no one candidate eclipsed that 50% threshold. And in Georgia, you need to get above 50% 50 to win an election. So that's why there were runoff elections. And it's possible that within Nigeria, there could be a runoff election for the presidency. A runoff election is a very controversial thing. Some people think we should eliminate it and get ranked choice voting. Other people think that we should put a runoff election in many other states to make sure that there's a 50% margin that everybody, that a majority of the population wants, whether it be for the presidency or whether it be for state elections or other states and so on. Now let's move on to Mexico. On Wednesday, Mexico's Senate approved changes backed by Lopez Obrador to the National Election Institute. The independent authority is beloved by Mexicans for its role in securing free and fair elections and transitioning the country away from nearly a century of one-party rule just over two decades ago. So the Mexican president's push to change elections has sparked a debate about the danger to democracy. This new legislation, which Lopez Obrador is expected to soon sign into law, will cut the agency's budget, hamstring its ability to penalize candidates for campaign finance violations, and loosen rules on public officials campaigning while in office. By the agency's own estimates, these budget cuts will force it to cut as much as 85% of its staff. This could mean fewer polling places or less secure electoral rolls. These are real impacts on the agency's ability to credibly administer federal elections. Mexico's electoral system was set up after decades of one-party rule with strict controls to prevent the government from meddling in elections. Now, the government is rolling back some of these controls. These drastic changes to the election rules will benefit the president's party and make it harder for opposition parties to get a fair shot in the upcoming elections. So, looking back at the question, is democracy prevailing or appalled this week? To the most part, democracy is prevailing throughout the world, especially within the United States. In the United States, we have our own presidential election heating up for 2024. There are currently three Republicans in the race, and I believe one Democrat has said that she will challenge President Biden. Uh, but President Biden is expected to run for re-election. So with, with the United States' own election heating up, it's a good sign for democracy, hopefully. And, but when you look at it abroad, Mexico's state of what's been just told that their election institute is not getting the funding it's needed and is being cut, it is a sad sign for democracy because democracy requires leadership and stability to be able to uh, have a strong government, to be able to have a strong democracy, to be able to have a people's voice, you need to have stability. And this looks like, to me, it looks like great corruption, great corruption and executive overreach. That itself is not a good sign for democracy. So when it comes to Mexico, democracy is definitely appalled. When it comes to Nigeria, the possibility of a runoff vote is not bad. There are many candidates and the fact that Nigeria has such a plethora of candidates and that they could go to a runoff vote could actually be a good sign for democracy rather than a bad sign. So in Nigeria, I'd have to say democracy is prevailing, with the one exception that there is only one woman candidate when there are 18 candidates. I think that has to stay with the state of society and progress within Nigeria, rather than the state of democracy within Nigeria. So I believe democracy overall is prevailing in Nigeria while it's a part of Mexico, but overall within the world, democracy is prevailing. And democracy has always had hiccups. But when we look at what we've talked about today with the judiciary's role in democracy, with the press, with all the different things that go into democracy and that democracy has overcome, Democracy has prevailed time and time again. And while there are hiccups to be worried about, such as in Mexico, another hiccup that I constantly am worried about is the extreme polarization. That is a topic that we will definitely get into in further depth in another one of these episodes, the extreme polarization. But that is something that concerns me. And when it comes to those two ideas, the idea that democracy is being hamstrung by extreme polarization or executive overreach in Mexico, I believe that it is democracy is very appalled by those two factors, but it is overall prevailing throughout the world. And we'll have to see. We'll keep you updated right here at Democracy Appalled every Monday at 5 a.m. Eastern on WWPR 1490. We will keep you updated on democracy's happenings domestically and abroad. And if there's a specific topic, state, place you want us to talk about, please email us at democracyappalled at gmail.com, and we will for sure bring that topic. In our next week's session. If you have any concerns, questions, or just want to talk to us, please reach out to us at democracyappalled at gmail.com. Again, that's democracyappalled at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening to this week's segment of Democracy Appalled, and we look forward to having you back next Monday at 5 a.m. Eastern. Remember, we are live on WWPR 1490 AM every Monday at 5 a.m. Eastern, and we look forward to having you on. This is your host, Rohan Mova, wishing you a happy and safe day, and we look forward to seeing you back next week. Thank you. Take care.